welcome back to season two of Outside of Session. I'm your host, licensed clinical social worker and therapist BFF, Julie Hilton. This season, I'm interviewing some incredible guests who also happen to be experts in their fields. Mental health, motherhood, spirituality, and so much more, I can't wait for their stories to be told. These are all the conversations I'm having outside of session. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Outside of Session. This week's episode, we are going to be talking about emotional regulation, which is a term that I think a lot of people may have heard of, but today we're really going to get into understanding what it means to regulate our emotions and how therapy can help you learn that skill. We also learn how it applies to really a range of different mental health issues and even how you can support a family member if they're having difficulty regulating their emotions. A little about today's guest and expert in this topic, I sat down with Cassie Love, who is a psychotherapist working with individuals and their families who experience more intense mood and emotional regulation needs, including unusual thoughts and experiences. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning, Cassie. Hi, Julie. It's so good to have you here today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm excited to come here and talk about emotional regulation, uh, something I use all the time, um, you know, with any of the clients I, I work with. It's a really core element in making progress. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel we were talking just a second ago before we hit record about um, me being a trauma therapist, like emotional regulation is a huge part of that. So I'm even hoping to learn from you today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think this idea of emotional regulation is often really popularized in DBD, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, and for anyone who really wants to become an expert or to learn more, like in the theoretical approaches and a process model of emotional regulation, um, in case you're dying to do that when when you're done here, um, Dan Gross in the 1990s has this, you know, really well developed uh, process model that has lots of components, uh, theoretical approaches around emotional regulation. And then, like I said, Marsha Linehan, when you talk about these core pillars of dialectical behavior therapy, um, which is, you know, a, a really great uh, evidence-based approach for uh, what's described uh, as the symptoms of borderline personality. Of course, right. DBT is used in uh, so much more than BPD now. Um, I personally use it uh, for those who have bipolar disorder, um, psychosis experiences, and then trauma um, as well. <clears throat> so, and in that DBT approach, distress tolerance is often talked about. Um, so, yeah, I'm here to talk about how I, I think every clinician, um, you know, uses their own models kind of in a way that works for their clients. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I uh, like to view mine as like a spectrum. And when you talk about emotional regulation and then th that model with Dan Gross, there's really two ways of looking at emotional regulation where it's as how can it be preventative or how can you work on shifting emotions and perspectives 
um, before, um, you know, emotional crises come about um, and when emotions feel more stable. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So for anybody who maybe hasn't even heard the term emotional regulation before, they're like, what even is that? Um, for mm-hmm. maybe they've, they've never heard that defined before. Mm-hmm. How, how would you define emotional regulation? Yeah, I think that's a, a great like basic building block there. Um, I would uh, say kind of the process of modulating your emotions. And honestly, it really starts at uh, an idea of just being aware of what yeah. emotions are you experiencing. Um, that sounds really basic, but for a lot of people, even those of us who feel in tune with our emotions, it that name really hard. Right. Yeah. Just naming different emotional experiences, being aware of your emotions um, and then moving into what kind of situations, what kind of experiences, um, maybe heighten your emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the way back to kind of in your own history and experiences, where did you learn you know, those emotions are, are correlated with situations and people. What arouses your emotions? Yeah. And so the first step is awareness because you're right. I think it, it can be very, very hard to name an emotion. Right, um, right. Especially when you're trying to be really specific and naming, like, where do you feel it in your body? Like so many times when I'm, when I'm doing some of that um, body work, it can be really, really hard to tell where you feel it because you feel so disconnected in the moment. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You saying that makes me, reminds me that there is just this wide spectrum on how we experience emotion. And that was something for me also to like learn as a clinician. Um, so in working, say with people with, um, certain mental health kind of conditions, maybe like schizophrenia, people, um, experience emotions differently and are aware of their emotions differently. And this term, this, this fancy term, alexithymia is this really extreme difficulty in understanding and being aware of emotions you're experiencing. Um, and say, you know, it's not a uh, diagnostic criteria of um, autism spectrum disorder, but it often, like in up to 50% of people on the spectrum, it occurs. Um, so that somatic piece that you just talked about and learning where to be aware of emotions in your body can be really crucial when you're working with individuals who maybe realize at some point they're depressed or even suicidal, but aren't aware of what emotions may be going on. So do you feel tightness in your chest? So it's behaviors. Are you noticing you're sleeping more than normal? Um, Yeah. So that behavioral component and emotional regulation is really important. I even like what you just said. It's not just about naming the emotion, but being Mm -hmm. familiar with how you individually experience that emotion. Right, right. Right. Because I, I might be able to identify anger, but I might experience anger very differently than you Mm -hmm. experience anger, Mm -hmm. depending on just the way that we're wired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. 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 For some people, anger means, you know, often outburst when, uh, so that's something we move to the end of the spectrum, like distress tolerance. For other people, it means kind of the shutting down experience, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and not talking, not voicing your emotions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and where that's where kind of the interpersonal skills piece uh, would be, you know, more effective. Um, so if that's the emotional part, would you say that the regulating part is, um, the regulation is figuring out how to sit with that emotion or experience that motion in a way that, that feels comfortable and safe for you? Like, how would you define, what is right. it, what are we trying to do when we're trying to regulate these emotions? Right. So I think it's, I, I really practice, um, and I, I get the sense you do to it in a collaborative way. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to help people figure out what feels like it's balanced and would work in your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, I once heard um, a, a really great MFT. I had this really great opportunity um, to be in this private cohort with her, Diane Gerhardt. And um, she um, was talking, we were in there talking about parenting and this idea of, of someone um, was saying about yelling at their kid, their kids had done something really extreme with toys and the parent kind of got heightened. I was like, why are you doing this? And the parent viewed that as really negative. And she was saying, well, where did you get that idea that you can't ever raise your voice? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is associated with bad parenting. Uh, so in emotional, when you regulate, I think it's different for different people. Um, so part of that regulation piece and what's going to look healthy in your life is really related to the cognitive exploration that's going to go on in therapy. That's like, really interesting. Yeah. What's going to be, what, what's a healthy family dynamic? So I'm a family therapist, you mm-hmm. know, by nature. So what's healthy in your family? Is, is that feel realistic? Like you're never going to raise your voice or if your spouse or somebody raises their voice, that's not, you know, okay. Um, or does it look okay if it sometimes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's an exploration uh, process. I like that. And and I talk with my clients about, um, I think so often we're given the message that we're supposed to control our emotions mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because right. emotions are bad or the unpredictable or they are, they're seen as scary. And a lot of people got that message when they were a kid growing up, right? Like that they mm-hmm. weren't allowed to express their emotions. Right. So I see a lot of adults working really hard to say, if I could just control my emotions better, mm-hmm. then the, the problem would be resolved. And a big thing for me is kind of what you're talking about is the problem isn't necessarily a lack of control over your emotions. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. that you've never decided what the comfortable level of experiencing that emotion is for you. And so when you're learning to regulate, I like that what you're saying is sometimes sometimes you can challenge some of those beliefs that you have about yelling is bad. And instead you can say, you know, maybe sometimes raising your voice is a healthy way to express an emotion, but it comes with like defining what those boundaries are for you and your mm-hmm, family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that word you use, decided. Because uh, I love that idea, you know, in therapy is there is so much control you have. There is so much power you have as an individual um, and coming to therapy and kind of deciding around what's going to work for you. Yeah. Um, and if you view emotional regulation, like on the spectrum, um, that early part is like awareness of emotions, this cognitive exploration around uh, what's affecting you? What heightens your emotions? What feels healthy for you and your family? Um, 
And even kind of before that, like in the beginning, um, one thing I I learned to do, and is when I I learned this when working with people, I've I've never gone back, is to address some core elements. Um, and one of those being sleep. Uh, mm. When I learned to start asking people, what does your sleep look like? How much sleep yeah. are you getting? Um, I I never went back from that. It sounds so basic. Um, but in so many, I think for anything, right. But in, when you're dealing with mental health, um, if you don't have enough sleep, you're, you're not going to really be able to well control your emotions. Um, and, um, I love that you're saying that because I'm thinking about all of my mom clients, <laughs> right? Who, right. Like, yeah. feel like they're just, drowning and they're, they, they don't have patience and they're irritable Mm -hmm. and they, they come to me and they're like, what is wrong with me? I can't, again, like I can't control my emotions. And I'm like, honey, this is not a you issue. This is like, there's Mm -hmm. nothing quote unquote wrong with you. You are exhausted mama. Like we've got to work on figuring out a way, which I know is like Telling a new mom, especially get more sleep is probably mm. one of the most frustrating things that they can right, hear. They're like, I'm right. not choosing not to get sleep, you know, but figuring out ways that mm. they can prioritize it or work on their sleep hygiene a little bit. Right, right. Even yeah. small tweaks mm-hmm. can make a huge difference in their ability the next day, like you said, to have a little bit more the ability to regulate those emotions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, right, that's coincidental. You say that because the case example I was thinking of, um, was a you know really high functioning client I worked with, um, and who was male and came to me and that was the core problem we were working on was irritability in parenting, and I you know oh, I love to- I don't mean to interrupt but I'm just I'm so glad you're using this as a case example because I think that again this is one of those things that so many parents I think that there's a lot of. Um, maybe guilt or shame about admitting this and and talking to someone about it, but the majority of parents are irritated. Right. It is the hardest job in the world, right? right? Right. You know, and and this um, example, the patient was losing their temper with their kids. And kind of the first thing I was like, is this only isolated to experiences with your children or with other people? Um, And it was really around parenting, um, and described as irritable. And that was one of the first things I asked about sleep. And to be honest, saying that I have three little ones. And when we talk about how our diversity, um, often informs, right. In therapy, a lot of times people feel like if, if you have, um, similar experiences, you relate. Um, but sometimes you have to keep that in check because, you know, if you have so many things in common, you may assume you know things about someone because they're a woman or they're um, the same religion or something. Um, but in this example, this patient, I felt like it was a way I use my own experience to guide and inform because when he said irritability and parenting, I knew from personal experience, I had noticed when I was irritable with my own kids 
it was almost always sleep deprivation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I have two little ones that are less than two years apart. And that, that that's a new experience, yeah. right? And parenting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, right. So, and, and it came to be, right, he was sleeping a couple hours less. Um, you know, then is recommended. Um, Harvard Health has some good research out there on irritability, um, the emotion of irritability and um, sleep. Um, so, you know, seven and a half to eight and a half is predominantly um, what I found recommending, um, you know, in, in sleep. Um I'm writing that down because I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, the Harvard Health Research and, and yeah, tips about. right, right. Yeah, they have good. So I know that you also, um, you shared that you work with some more of the um, intense diagnoses. Well, yeah, yeah. So I, I describe them as um, intensive mood and emotional regulation needs. Um, so that often includes uh, bipolar disorder, Reese shifts in mood. Um, borderline personality, um, where you see the shifts in emotions and sometimes mood as well. Um, individuals who have unusual thoughts or experiences, um, which can be called psychosis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how does sleep maybe affect those populations as well? Right. I, I So it, in terms of what we're talking about, I think the easiest uh, to shift into is borderline personality, which is characterized by um, having um, emotions that um, often don't um, serve you well in communicating with others and interacting with others. So you often have interpersonal difficulties. Um, so just that, you know, if you can imagine that's your experience, um, often with individuals frequently with those around you, um, and difficulty tolerating your own emotions where it may lead you to do things you wish you hadn't, or, or you may even come to regret, regret, um, adding sleep deprivation on top of that. I mean, even the best of us, I think with the most regulated, uh, moods and emotions, like I shared it's hard to be patient yeah. um, with people, consider alternate perspectives um, if you don't have sleep, honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just change your, it changes your capacity. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. Your bandwidth is yeah. so much smaller, right? Yeah. Um, so just, you know, giving extra sleep can really, I think, give you an edge uh, mentally, physically, on being able to tolerate your emotions and also give you that bandwidth when we talked about cognitive exploration of uh, yeah. perspectives. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's one of the easiest. Um, I think that's a good reminder to people though, that as, as many of the, the skills that you have and the training that you have and all of like the resources and the work that you do with clients to say that you start with sleep. Mm-hmm. Again, I know you're saying that that's like one of the most simple things, but to think about how important it is, like we can't skip over that, you know, that right. sometimes the the very basic things really do lay, change mm -hmm. the foundation, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad, I'm glad you're starting with that. Right. Yeah. I, I too, sometimes I wonder, it, does this seem overly simplified, but whether it does or does not, um, um, so I had a, a supervisor who is an in, in, integrative wellness 
And um, yeah, I that's where I learned that, honestly. And I'm um, starting with sleep because it's really important too when you're talking about having unusual experiences um, or in unusual thoughts. And I, I really normalize that as well because who hasn't had an unusual thought or experience? Like, have you ever heard your phone ring when it didn't? heard the doorbell when it didn't happen. I notice I'm a lot more edgy and kind of, you know, frazzled by things when I don't have sleep. Absolutely. What was that? Was that my phone? Um, You know, sounds bother me more when I'm sleep deprived. Um, So that's a a basis too, when you're having unusual thoughts or experiences. Um, And then bipolar disorder, um, right, that can be a criteria for the diagnosis anyways, this major adjustment, lack of sleep. So right. just right. monitoring sleep, learning to track your, your sleep in bipolar disorder, but for so many other conditions as well, like depressed mood and anxiety, can be one of those like warning signs to you that, hey, things might be likely to start building upon themselves Mm -hmm. and get to a place I don't want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what are some other things um, besides sleep that you look at? So sleep and then, um, you know, diet, nutrition, um, Mm, that, that is in the cognitive, really, exploration process for people. Um, and that can, that can look a lot different. Um, sleep is a go-to for me, um, diet and nutrition. I think people often have ideas on where they want to go with their nutrition and what feels healthier for them, whether that's drinking more water, cutting out some sugar. Um, right. So I, I bring up an awareness about that. Um, but sleep and spending time outside. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk to so, us about that. Right. That's strongly correlated with mood as well, like the exposure to sunlight. Um, so that's often a, a basic if you're dealing with depressed mood or right, these unusual experiences. Um suggesting to people, I say experiments, um, if you can spend however much time outside, I usually start with like 20 minutes. It could be doing anything, uh, but just exposure to sunlight. Um, I think that's just such a good reminder. Again, that so many of these things, they are basic. It is. Yeah, it is. And they are things that we all have access to, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, just being able to get outside, but again, it takes like a, a conscious effort to know, I know this is good for me. So even if I don't feel like doing it right now, mm-hmm. I know it. I know that there's a greater benefit. Right, right. Yeah. And I try to suggest like, can we do an experiment um, if you spend, you know, two times outside this week, um, then we'll see, do you feel like you notice any difference? Yeah. Um, I even say with teenagers, I work with, if you can, you can do anything. You can take your iPad on the front porch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can walk to the mailbox, you know, so, um, those are where, so if you like view it on a spectrum, that is the very beginning where I start like the daytime, the sleep. Um, and then this cognitive, I'm a big CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So we touched a few minutes ago on some of that behaviorism. Um, for some people, an awareness of, motion, of, of emotions looks like learning behaviors. 
that are associated with emotions. Okay. Um, which is, you know, are you sleeping unusually late? Do you have like a tightness in your chest? Do you have increased breathing? Um, that might be for some people, um, this really behavioral, if you deal with say mild cognitive impairment, Mm -hmm. autism spectrum, things like that. Um, but for anyone, I think noticing where you feel emotions in your body, um, is helpful. I don't know about you, Jill. I'm a, I'm a shoulder person, right? (laughs) I'm a tightness in my shoulders, anxious. Yeah. 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 Um, I think too, a lot of people can be more aware of what's going on in their body. Mm-hmm. Like they're aware that, that where they carry pain, but they don't associate that with emotion. So that's one of the things it's like, right. some people are aware of the emotion, but not the physical sensation and some are vice versa. And it's helping them put all of that together to say, this is when you experience this, this is where you experience mm-hmm. this. And this is what you are experiencing. Right, right. And one of the um, awareness pieces um, I I like to use as an intervention and in working with a lot of clients um, and that I think is really helpful in understanding somatically where you feel um, emotions in your body um, is formal meditation and mindfulness. So yeah, I, I love doing um, meditation, mindfulness work when clients are open to that. And I think that too has some kind of, you know, sometimes Western stigma around it, um, that it ne- is necessarily sitting, you know, cross like on a carpet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's a few great like apps out there that teach uh, beginner, you know, meditation skills. But when you talk about emotional awareness, somatic awareness um, of thoughts, um, I, you know, I, I really love meditation work. I do too. And do you typically recommend um, finding like a guided meditation for a particular emotion? Um, so I try to get people um, to explore meditations. Okay. Um, because not everybody's going to like the same thing. Um, but you know, so there's informal and formal mindful meditation practice. So meditation, right. Traditionally is that formal, it is a formal sit down focused, uh, style. Um, so, um, some people you have to start in the informal piece and, uh, may not be open or ready for formal meditation. Um, but there's a few good ones, um, you know, out there that I think teach some of the core components, um, like focus, awareness, um, the self-compassion piece, mm-hmm. they're the pillars of meditation. Um, and I really think you have to learn kind of what formally meditation is to get the benefits. Um, so that probably sounds, I don't, is that sound geekier? It's, it's really simple, right? And uh, once you get, you know, going, but I love, like when I was at Emory, uh, there was a psychologist there. She was a big fan of Headspace and the beginner. I'm in the calm camp. I, I love the calm. And uh, they both have really good beginner um, things that are just a few minutes long. Um, that teach you the real basics 
of what meditation mindfulness are. Yeah. And I'll make sure to put those apps in the show notes too. So people can think about it. Um, do you know mm-hmm. insight timer? I do have insight timer. Um, and it definitely, I, I recommend that. And then there's smiling mind. So insight mm-hmm. timer and smiling mind, if you want to avoid the subscription cost. And I've also seen on Apple music, um, those uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, meditations and, and of course YouTube, right. Is probably, um, I don't know a channel off the top of my head, uh, but I do think learning what formal meditation is um, and the components of it is an important part, you know, if you're going to get like the real benefit out of it. Hey everyone, I just wanted to pause for a quick moment to say thank you so much for all the love and support that you're showing outside of session. If you haven't already, do me a huge favor and hit the subscribe button, give me a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends. Help me take this show to another level. Now back to today's episode. When I think when it comes to emotional regulation, the reason why I think that meditation is so good for it is Mm -hmm. because meditation really helps you to sit with the present and just be in the moment. Yeah. And it helps you so much to, um, be present with and learn your inner workings. I know that sounds a little bit woo woo. <laughs> no, I know I, I, I every every description of meditation, mindfulness, I always I love hearing. There's so many, and I love it. Yeah, and I think that when we're talking about before we can get to a place of being able to control or regulate our mm-hmm. emotions, um, we have to be really in tune with what's going on inside with us. Because a lot of times, I think that when there is that disconnect, it's like emotions are happening to us. Right. Yes. I see. I love that. Yes. Like they're just kind of yeah. happening to us and we don't feel mm-hmm. like that. We don't feel like they are something that we have like a connection to, like they are just slamming into us and, and we're just like riding this wave. Right. Right. But right. I think meditation helps us to be really present with ourselves to say, if they're coming from within, we can work with them. We can embrace them. We can sit with them. We can increase our emotional maturity, those kind mm-hmm. of things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it doesn't feel so much like the emotions are happening to us. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I totally, yeah. And that, I think that's why, um, you know, after you look at, are you, are you meeting your basic body needs? Are you mm-hmm. sleeping? Do you eat? Do you have, make time for yourself to eat? Do you go outside your house? Um, then that cognitive piece. And I love the mindful, well, well meditation um, teacher, Jeff Warren. And I think one of the best descriptions I ever heard of meditation that I related to was it's this awareness that you can have thoughts, but you don't have to react to them. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And I, I think too, when we talk about all kinds of conditions and here that people can relate to, um, OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. I think meditation is one of the most helpful tools out there because that's what OCD is by nature, reoccurring obsessive thoughts. So when you understand, hey, I can have thoughts all day long, 
but it doesn't mean I have to decide to have an emotion around it. I like that. I mm-hmm. like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions that I wanted to ask was how can someone notice if they are dysregulated? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if they are working on their awareness, how, how do you help them understand when they are dysregulated and what does that look like? Right. So I think, um, right. The cognitive piece on exploring. Um, so I find that when people put distressing situations down, like, um, you know, um, someone's yelling, um, I'm upset when someone yells or, um, my, um, you know, uh, best friend is ignoring me. I think when you look at those, I personally love thought records too with clients. Okay. Um, so that evidence of for, for evidence against peace, what's the, you know, um, facts around this being true or not true. Um, then in that, um, ride, if you ever do one of those formal thought records, there's an emotional rating piece. Like how strong are my emotions around this? Like, what do I feel? Um, You know, abandoned, angry, and writing those emotions. I think for a lot of people, uh, when you start to explore um, what's the facts around this being true, not true, um, they have some kind of understanding and realization um, that, hey, I probably experience really strong emotions around particular situations mm-hmm. or events. Um, th- things with my friends often trigger me, things in public situations, um, situations just with my kids, but I'm fine with every, you know, anybody else. Um, then I, so I, I do think it tends to be, you know, certain people, situations, uh, for some people, they get along really well with everyone, but one particular family member, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so you know. recognizing the situations and the triggers is a really important piece of it. Right, right. right. Yeah. And um, <laughs> like I said, I love thought records in the cognitive piece. There's a couple different um, versions out there. There's a really great seven column. Um, if you're working uh, with children, teens, um, or, you know, maybe, um, someone, it makes sense to do more basic, then there's a good four column that, you know, is a much more basic kind of, um, building block piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this is a silly question or not, but I think that when people typically hear emotional regulation, I think they think of anger, anxiety, Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think those are some of the things that we tell ourselves that if, if we can get a handle on these things, right. But right. what are, what are some of the ones that maybe you see and you work with clients with that wouldn't initially come to mind? Like those are the ones that we wouldn't really think about regulating. Does that make um, sense? Like some of the specific emotions that people may not realize that they're being overwhelmed by? Um, that does. Um, so I think, you know, especially for people with, um, self-harm behaviors going on, this fear of abandonment, um, is often a a core piece around, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. self-harm, um, not feeling accepted by other people. I, I see that in teens, um, too, this, 
you know, I, I go hang out with friends and stuff and then I come home and self harm mm-hmm. um, because I don't know how to feel accepted. Um, I'm not sure that I am um, or someone said something that really affected or upset me. Um, I got a text message. Um, so yeah, that is, um, and I think that often falls in that realm of what we call like RO DBT, that new, you know, new erratically open DBT, right? A, a different approach, uh, for people who are over-regulated, um, mm, talk and about that. yeah, experience like emotions, like perfect, you know, um, not, not necessarily just emotions, but compulsions too around things have to be perfect. And I have uh, thoughts that occur over and over again about, um, so yeah, I think what you say is it's so important to consider emotions, um, so differently. And when people do come in, um, often anger, cause I think, you know, like you're saying that's often a socially unacceptable emotion. We're talking about anger is- and yelling. Yeah. Um, and the interpersonal skills piece, that is important. I don't want to downplay like being angry or say that yelling is always the healthiest thing going on. Um, but there are way, ways to express emotions um, that make you feel better about it and, you know, make uh, other people. Because, you know, if you go, if yelling is your go to, it, it's not probably going to work out for you or the people around you all the time. If you have a client that has maybe some, um, they have a right to be angry, mm-hmm. but they've never let themselves express it before because again, they socially and also in families, anger is a kind of like a taboo emotion that we're mm-hmm. not really encouraged to express. Mm-hmm. And in therapy, you're trying to help them to be able to say, no, you have a right to be angry. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be able to release this and feel it and experience it so that it can be released. Right. 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 But I have people ask me all the time, like, okay, well, how, how do you process anger in a healthy way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, how, mm-hmm. how do you help guide people through that? Um, yeah. When you talk about that, it reminds me so much of like, so I do a ton of family therapy mm-hmm. um, work. I, I, I think the vast majority of my clients, honestly, now that I'm reflecting, because uh, when I say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a family therapist by nature. Of course, I work with people individually, but you're always welcome to bring family or, you know, or let them be involved. Uh, I think the majority of people do take up that offer a lot of times. Um, and uh, one thing when you said is, you know, how do I navigate being angry? It makes me often think of boundaries and families. Mm. Um, and I would say um, when you think about anger on that spectrum and emotional regulation, there's the distress tolerance piece of in the moment, how do I, I deal with this in a productive way that I'm not going to regret? Mm-hmm. But preventatively, how do I cope um, with emotions around anger? And I think often, um, especially in families, because I review, I view kind of everybody that comes in in the context of relationships. Right. Um, and um, so I think like that early kind of cognitive piece is having boundaries with people. 
um, about, you know, what is healthy for you to kind of tolerate with people um, and, you know, where, where you're willing to give and take. So it's an exploration process because you can't die on every hill. Yeah. Uh, you got to pick them, but yeah. So, um, right. That, that reminds me too, kind of being angry and learning, you know, assertiveness, communication skills mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is something I often work with. I, I notice I, I'm thinking in my mind right now, um, I work with clients, um, often that are elderly and, uh, you know, senior citizen, probably how they would define themselves. And, um, communicating with adult children is it, mm. a new dynamic for them. Absolutely. How, how does it shift? Um, so I can be assertive with my kids. Um, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, so that's an interesting family dynamic when kids become real adults and shift their perspectives on, mm. um, you know, maybe I need to help my family member, my parent more, um, but not overstepping. Um, sometimes there, there is this overstepping boundaries piece, uh, when they almost become like a parent. Yeah. And then, yeah. um, yeah. Absolutely. You also mentioned, um, a minute ago, distress tolerance. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit for people who maybe have never heard of distress tolerance before? Like where right. does that fit in? Right. Yeah. So if, if we're starting back on the spectrum, when we talk mm -hmm. about early on, like sleep, um, spending time outside. Those are these early preventative ways of regulating emotions. And then you want to move into awareness of your emotions. How can I explore what looks healthy and what's realistic? Um, so I think of distress tolerance at the end of that spectrum of when you have emotions um, how do you modulate your emotions? And so quite often distress tolerance is for when you, individuals feel, and we all feel really heightened emotions, um, such as anger. And you, um, often notice that you resort to actions, behaviors, that um, you later often regret right. um, or that cause conflict in relationships, um, outbursts. Um, we talked about self-harm behaviors. Um, you know, it can be, even be harm to others. Um, you know, domestic violence, mm -hmm. um, breaking things, um, you know, and it can even be yelling or outbursts to like friends or neighbors. Uh, that's a big one too. I often work with saying things in social situations, maybe yeah. a regret. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, so those are a bunch of behaviors. Uh, and I'll talk about some different ones too um, that people use as distress tolerance. Um, and, you know, some, some things like, you know, working um, with individuals bipolar, borderline, but who can't relate to this though? Just Absolutely. anxiety, depression. Yeah. Um, so glad you're normalizing that. Yeah. Right. Spending money that you later regret. Who hasn't maybe bought something to make yourself feel good? Um, eating in a way that you feel like is unhealthy yep. or later regret. Um, I'm a big dark chocolate. You know, I'm, I'm culpable here. Um, so... Um, I notice that I sometimes eat to kind of cope with emotions or Reese cups. 
Uh, so, um, diet Coke when I'm really tired <laughs> and yeah, so normalizing it, but for some people, um, it borders into behaviors that feel very unhealthy and are really right. affecting their lives. And um, again, that's on a spectrum, like you said. It is. It is. So we could be, you know, what, what might be okay for some people, a couple purchases for some people could be, you know, you've spent thousands of dollars this week on a credit card. Right. Um, and it can be really detrimental to not only you, your family finances. Um, and then, you know, working with a lot of others, um, you use alcohol, drugs, prescriptions in a way um, that, you know, is not healthy for your, your lifestyle. So distress tolerance is helping you to pick tolerate. Right. And yeah, to pick behaviors, to decide what behaviors um, are going to be helpful for you in situations to tolerate emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when the emotion is already there and you're already in that heightened place and you're learning, okay, how do I kind of ride this wave right. in a way where I sit with it and I maintain the ability to choose how I respond to that emotion mm -hmm. instead of acting impulsively. Right. right yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. What's the behavior I can use right now? Yeah. Yeah. That I'm not going to feel like is unhealthy or damage my relationships. Um, and that too is so individualized. It is. Yeah. Tolerance. Yeah. So another thing that I wanted to touch on is that, um, especially when it comes to what you describe as like the more intensive mental health needs um, that you work with, right. clients aren't the only ones impacted. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm thinking about if we have any listeners today who maybe have a family member or a friend with some of like the, the bipolar mm -hmm. disorder or right. um, mm -hmm. like, do you have any tips or advice for them on how they can support their loved one when it comes to emotional regulation and at the same time, take care of themselves too, in that relationship, like, right. Because you um, work from such a family perspective and friends are family too, right? I do. Yes. So I, I often encourage family therapy, um, you know, offer and encourage, um, that, you know, you come to family therapy together, even if it's not every session, mm -hmm. um, to help figure out, um, how, how can we all cope with emotions differently? And what I explain to families and couples I work with is, um, quite often here, um, you know, fixing problems for you. Um, regulating emotions is about shifting perspectives because there's so much you can do in the preventative stage. Distress yeah. tolerance is important, but it's in the moment. If you can work on shifting perspectives around how you think about things, if you can be, I love the word flexible. Mm. You can just be a little bit more flexible in what your expectations are, um, what you think of situations. So as you can imagine, if you, one person does that, it's great. If you can get two or more people in a family to do that, it compounds upon itself. And it's so much more effective. 
Um, so yeah. I do encourage that, like the family therapy piece, couples therapy. Um, and there are a lot of great individual therapists out there as well who are great about, um, you know, understanding how to integrate family sessions or couple sessions. Uh, yeah. That. And I could see how it would be so important when you're learning how to support a family member to really take the time to learn how different their inner workings are, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That sometimes we think that the way that we experience emotions is just how it is. Right. And we kind of assume right. that that's how, like, if I can, if I can control myself, everybody should be able to, um, mm-hmm, because we mm-hmm. assume that they're experiencing the same thing that we are right. and they're really not. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very different. People experience emotions very personally, mm-hmm. um, and differently. I think for one person who is often prone to outbursts or angry, uh, or irritable, you know, understanding that perspective of how someone may shut down or not communicate in mm-hmm. situations, those look like very different things. They do. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so when you talk about how, how might families um, deal with, if you have a family member with more intense mood and emotional regulation, there's also some really great like um, psychoeducation, psychosocial support programs out there. I'll say Akin, A-K-I-N, Akin is a good one um, for families kind of supporting these more okay. intensive mood and emotional um, needs. Um, um, I believe it's a national program too. So it's like education based on um, how to navigate um, you know, and be supportive and right. Cause it's a big experience for you as well as a family member. Um, NAMI has some really great, um, family programs. Their, their, um, stuff is free. Um, their groups are free, um, and they're nationwide as well. Okay. Um, so those are some great support resources, Uh, for families. Yeah, absolutely. I will get all of that from you so I can put it in the show notes because I think the um, the more resources that we can let people know about the better, right? Right. I I do agree, right? Especially, yeah, if you don't know how to help a family member, that's especially true for parents Mm -hmm. um, when you have teenagers with really big experiences um, really big emotions. Um, it can be a, a challenge in learning how to be a supportive parent, but also ensuring your child or teen gets appropriate mental health. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, Cassie, this has been so good. Oh, <laughs> one thing you should know about me, Julie, is I could talk about anything. <laughs> so. That's how most of us therapists are. Like we just, this is our jam. So we could talk about it all day. I right. Know. Um, but before we go, I do have the one question that I ask everyone that I want to, um, get your thoughts on. If you could go back and tell your younger self one thing with all of your life experience now and all of the wisdom that you have now, and we're all on, you know, we're all constantly growing and changing. Mm -hmm. So now that you have all of your growth, Mm -hmm. if you could go back and tell yourself, your younger self, one thing, what would it be? Oh, one thing, um, I think for me, even um, the alternate perspectives piece, 
Um, you know, if I could have started early on as a parent, I also have adult stepchildren. Yeah. Um, that understanding flexibility in life. Um, I once heard my stepmom say, and when she said this, I paused with it. Um, we were talking about holiday plans. I think that for a lot of families can be really contentious. We we're talking about holidays. And she said, oh, honey, I don't care. I don't care what day it is or what time. I'll accommodate just whenever. I'm just happy for you to be here. Um, that was a big perspective for me. And I, you know, reflected on that. And I just try to be more flexible and easygoing. I love things. that. Because flexibility just makes life so much easier. Yeah. When you, you're, you're open to other ideas, when you yeah. evaluate your own perspectives. Yeah. Just to be yeah. able to tell yourself it's okay to go with the flow a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when you get upset reflecting on, you know, what else could be going on? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we have for today, unless there's anything else we didn't touch on that, that you wanted to say? No, no, I don't think so. <clears throat> so um, I think it's, is it psychotherapy tools? I took a great CE on DBT um, and it had a lot in there, like on psychosis and bipolar disorder, because those are non-traditional ways of applying DBT. And there was one in there on trauma. Okay. So it's like eight CEs. So I think it's the website psychotherapy tools, but that's awesome. Um, yeah. I, I like DBT. I think uh, for distress tolerance that though uh, it can be really helpful. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So well, I hope this was good, Julie. I enjoy yeah. talking about how I do emotional regulation. Yeah, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Yeah. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Outside of Session. Remember, while I am a licensed therapist, this podcast is not a substitute for individual therapy. The contents of this episode are for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911 for immediate assistance or dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline.